Aspire to dream. Aspire to achieve. Aspire to lead. Aspire to forge your own path. I'm Josh Booth. On behalf of the Aspire team, I want to welcome you to the first chapter of Aspire, the life of an American entrepreneur, with our special guest, Ambassador Edward Crawford. The podcast format allows for the telling of Ed Crawford's story in his own words. It'll be like we're grabbing coffee with the ambassador and our Aspire host, best-selling author and award-winning journalist, Thomas Kelly. Over the course of 14 chapters, ranging from 15 to 25 minutes each, Aspire presents a vivid picture of the life of an American entrepreneur, with many insights on business, strategy, success, and failure, but... Aspire is about much more than business. The wide-ranging conversation takes us beyond the corporate suites and industrial plants, from Manhattan to Cleveland, Philadelphia to Fort Knox, cross-country on motorcycles, through the Alps on skis, and finally, touring Dublin in the limousine of the American ambassador to Ireland. This is the story of a most successful entrepreneur, family man, philanthropist, athlete, community activist, and proud Irish American. So let's get started with Aspire, Chapter 1, In the Beginning. Hey, we want to talk a little bit about your story, Ambassador. Can we do that? Uh, Yes, thanks. You were born in New York City. Yes, in Manhattan, uh, 1938. There came a time, you were like 10, 12, whatever, and uh, you left, the family decided to leave New York City. My mom decided to take her three boys and her husband out of New York City. She was very unhappy with the atmosphere, although it was loaded with her family from Ireland, their brothers and sisters that had come over. Discussions, as I remember them, were around the the idea that go west, go west, you know, and... uh, Go west, young man. And uh, my father was an electrician, and uh, he had a big truck with all the tools in the back, and basically it was just jump in the truck, load all our sleeping bags on top of the tools, put down the hatch, and the only thing is you move down, right down the New Jersey Turnpike, turn right, go west. On the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the first surprise of the trip is there was no Ohio State Turnpike, so we had to turn right or north on Route 7 in a little town called Conneaut, Ohio. That comes later in the, the story because Conneaut is Ohio, and keep in mind, we were going through there in 1948. But what happened is the following morning has changed my life and changed our family's life because in the center of downtown Cleveland, on St. Clair Avenue, going through Cleveland at about 8 o'clock on, I think, June 16, 1948, the engine blew up and was smoking. And Mom, yeah, we got out and, and Dad went to get a job, which he did at Western Electric. We went and visited apartments in Lakewood, the west side. We didn't find what Mom had in mind, so we ended up in... And night and at six o'clock, there's a firestone. Anyone that grew up in Cleveland is a very famous area, Cleveland Heights. At Cedar and Fairmont, there's a firestone gas station, which I ended up working at later in my life. But we walked up that hill, three of us and mom. Dad wasn't with us, and we moved into a basement apartment at twenty two fifty two Grandview Avenue in the heart of Cleveland Heights. So you walked up Cedar Hill. Uh, that's right. With your belongings over your shoulder, exactly. and you're carrying a couple suitcases and some sleeping bags. Yes. And starting a new life in Cleveland. It wasn't particularly Cleveland, it's just where the truck blew up. There was no one that had any part in selecting it. Yes, there was. Somebody big made that decision. But, you know, the, the truck brought us to Cleveland, and uh, 
Grandview Avenue was the place we began our lives. Okay, so you settle into Cleveland. Your dad gets a job. So what happens then? It was such an interesting, uh, quick departure from where we were going. And uh, we came out of the house the next day, the basement apartment, and started making friends with everyone in the neighborhood. But everyone at the, in the neighborhood were going to Cumberland Pool. There was a city pool there. So everyone kept asking us to go to the pool. We were smart enough collectively, the three of us, to understand that it, you go there, you needed $2.50 to buy a pass. And we did not have the 250 times three, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So I decided, or we decided, we didn't like swimming. We didn't like water. <laughs> so we told everyone in the neighborhood, thank you very much, but we don't like to swim. In the fall, I realized we were in a wonderful area. In the fall, I went into Roxborough. At that time, Cleveland Heights had one of the highest ranking schools, public school systems in the country, like Shaker Heights. And when I was there, I was supposed to get into the, go into the fifth grade. Well, I was in the fifth grade for about four, four days, and they moved me back to the fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And the way I got moved back, they just came in and took me and walked me down the stairs, down the stairs, into the fourth grade. I was very unhappy. The problem is I couldn't spell things, and I couldn't read things, and they wanted, you know, and they had, didn't have an answer. In 1948, dyslexia was not an issue. Didn't even know the word. Didn't even know the word. And I was stuck stuck hard mm -hmm. and, and you didn't know why uh, you know i didn't know why and they didn't know why well what was crazy about that is my younger brother was moved up from the fourth grade to the fifth grade <laughs> so, so needless to say it put a little trauma in my life and i reacted in a very angry way and this is going to lead into a very important part of my history and so i've selected 10 or 12 people that helped create who Ed Crawford is today and has been. And I was created by a lot of other people influencing me. And I'll give you an example, which was very positive and clearly becomes the first hero in my story. Who was that? Name was Mrs. Vincent. She's a teacher. She was a principal at Roxborough Elementary School. And, and my teacher was Killinger, Mrs. Killinger. And she was the fourth grade teacher inherited me. What happened... I went out to go out at recess. I'm having a problem at school. I've been flunked back. I'm going, walking downstairs, and next thing I know, I'm out trying to play baseball with people. They've been going together at the elementary school for years. They're in the sixth grade, the fifth grade. You know, I'm brand new from New Jersey, and I'm supposed to be in California. Okay, I'm not. I'm here. So I wanted to play baseball, and I wanted to be part of it. They refused me three days in a row. So the following day, I got up and I ran out there. I got the bat and ball, which a teacher put there, and I took the bat and ball, went in the right field, and threw it over the fence. <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls! And it immediately disturbed everyone because I was reacting and overreacting, and I got in a fight with a bunch of them, which I probably won. I was very f angry at the time. And that got me off to a pretty rough start. And Mrs. Vincent took me to the principal. Mrs. Vincent, Mrs. Killinger, the teacher, took me there. I knew something was wrong because she was actually talking to me, and I could understand her. She started talking about discipline and control and so forth. And she says, I want you to come to my office every morning before school starts, but I want you to do me a favor. I want you to do me a favor. I'm looking at her, me, do you a favor? She said, I need a crossing guard. So she said, they made me a crossing guard. So you gave me a belt and something. So I had to be there at the corner. I said, this is, not, this is just terrible. You know, I don't have any idea what she's trying to accomplish at this point. Two days later, I come in there. And there's this, a young man sitting in the room where I just walked into looking like I'm in trouble again. And he's shaking like this, you know, and I said, wow. And I looked at I turned to myself. I said, wait a second. 
I thought I had problems. Look at this guy, you know. So mm-hmm. Mrs. Vincent calls me in there in her office, and she said, I want you to do me a favor. Andy is just moved to Cleveland. Parents are doctors at the Cleveland Clinic. And he came yesterday, and we sent him with his class to the gathering. And every morning, they had everyone in the school all came together at 10 o'clock. I'd like you to take Andrew to the, the meeting. I said, well, do what? You know, you've, you're having problems. He's having problems. You can help him. He's afraid to go in the hall because they're going to pick, pick on him. They pushed him yesterday. In one moment, she was trying to teach me leadership. She was trying to teach me res- respect for others. I love the idea. I got to show off again. I got to grab this big guy that was shaking, walk him up the damn thing. Everyone was scared of me in the, the field from, <laughs> because of the day before, you know, throwing the next day I was going to throw them over the fence, you know. And Mrs. Vincent and Mrs. Killinger taught me responsibility, taught me to think about other people other than myself. And I was on a very, very bad track at that particular time. And I could have gotten a lot of strange ways, but they solved it in a very positive way. And I've always remembered them for that and thankful for them. So they were your first heroes. There came a time, Roy Crawford, he had to move on. He wanted to move on to California. Yes. That had to be traumatic for you. Can, uh, tell us that story. For years, a sensitive spot to me, I've stated over and over again that my father passed when I was 18 years old. And I selected the word passed because I, it implied that he had died. Well, he hadn't died. This is the first time I'm admitting this publicly to anyone. He didn't die. So you're close to a question. I'm answering it differently than I have answered it for the last 50 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. What I meant by past is he wanted, he had started his own business, Crawford Heating and Boiler Company, and he was an entrepreneur, and he was struggling to build his business. For a year, the most happiest part of my life was working with him, you know, on... Saturdays, coming home at night after 30, yeah, and it was amazing, and of course, he becomes a hero because he was, in in his his way, trying to be part of my life, but ultimately, he really wanted to continue the trip to California, Mm -hmm. and when I mean he passed, you know, uh, one day he was there, and and he, he advised me that he was leaving, he wanted me to go with him, actually. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to go with him because of the relationship we had built. I knew I couldn't do that. You know, I had one paper route. Then I worked at the gas station. Then I was working about three jobs. When my mother started cleaning houses, I got the message. I never turned back from that. I never turned back from that responsibility. And if she could do that, I could do, you know, my part. So he doesn't get as much credit for the results as he should. So there came a day when your dad just moved on. Yeah, he left on a Saturday morning. It sounds like you kind of took over as the man of the house. I think Jerry was the man of the house because he wanted that position. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't the man of the or- house. I was the organizer. I could tell you a story sometime about being taught how to play chess properly. You mm-hmm. know, and there are many lessons. She was an excellent Monopoly player with her boys. She never lost. <laughs> Maybe because she was the banker and never ran out of money. but. Uh, you play Monopoly and you play chess. Didn't you learn something from your mom playing chess? Classic moments are we'd be playing chess and, you know, I'd make a move and she'd just start crying and literally <laughs> like I got to go to church and go to say another rosary. It's a couple of rosaries. She because, for a chess move. For a chess move. I mean, it was pretty intense stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know and what was the point? Why, why did she cry? Well, the, the, the point was simply that 
she uh, reminded me in between the tears that I was moving a man uh, a pawn and the, in the wrong direction and was making a mistake. And she accused me of only thinking about myself and not thinking about the other player. And she said, you will not be successful in chess or in life if you do not think about what the other person's thinking about. Stop thinking about yourself. What it's a, a waste lesson. of time. What a great lesson. Yeah, well, it... And it, she I taught you that over a chessboard. And over moves at a chessboard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... It, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't measure the response of that chess move. But, you know, so it stuck with me in every business transaction. You know, I've made 117 acquisitions in my career. In fact, every acquisition I've ever made starts with talking to the person that's selling the company. I need two questions answered here before I leave. You have to do the same thing over and over again. You have to be thinking of the other people. You have to be thinking the respect. And the two questions... that you needed to have answered. What were those questions? Two things are simply this. Number one, why am I so lucky that you're selling me your company? Mm -hmm. And if I don't understand the reason, I'm not going to be here much more than about an hour. And if I can't understand it, I'm not going to do it. And secondly, after I get that past my little Irish head, I have to understand who's going to run the company. I can't run it. I can't run all these companies. I have to get people. I have to build people. I have to respect people. I've got to find someone there. If he's selling and is going out, who's there to build on? And that's what I've become very, very good. I'm a tremendous team player. I think of employees, they're like entrepreneurs. In a room, you could put a bunch of entrepreneurs in a room, and there's 20 people in the room or 20 individuals in the room or potential people to run your company. There's seven or eight of them over in the corner. There's only two or three in the middle to make all the noise that look like a leader and everything else. But that doesn't mean they can do the job, okay? Mm-hmm. There's people in the corner that are every bit as smart, every bit as ambition, but they just don't have that glitter, that thing that it takes to try to lead and face rejection. This is not that. There are a lot of people there. You have to bring them out of the corner and convince them. What they really want is they don't want to be the CEO. They don't want to be the quarterback. They don't want to be the owner, but they want to play in a winning team. They want to be the right guard on a football team, put the quarterback, and they want to be the best in the league. And you, if you give them that and take the risk profile away from there emotionally, and you know, that's your job. That's my job. I'm the risk taker. I'm the person that leads. I measure rejection as something as I defeat rejection by creating energy for myself. You use the word glitter in there. A little bit later, that resonated with me. You're talking about the people standing around yeah. in the outside, and the reason they're standing over there is they, they don't have that glitter, that, that sparkle that makes them think, hey, I want to be the leader. On your team, you want the right guard to think he's just as important as a quarterback. He is. Try to run the ball without it. This is 60 years I've been doing this. I'm not exactly practicing. I could not have been as successful if I didn't take all those people with me. They wanted to come along because. Some people just don't want the pressure of that. But boy, they want to win. And they want to play for a winner. Look, at it. it's like Connie out of Ohio, that plant I talked about. Think of it this way. There are 280 people out there today working. They come in in the morning and punch a time clock. At 6.30, the plant starts at 7. They spend all day there. They have lunch there and they leave at 3.30. And there are uh, maybe 7,000 people in that community. Mm-hmm. They have a Catholic church. They have a, a other church. They have a high school vibrant with sports. They take it, you know, Connacht football is very, when they play Ashbeal, it's like it's Michigan against Ohio State. Super Bowl. There are 50 people that have been in for 25 and 30 years. Why? Because I stay in business. We're competitors. 
their team members. And I've gone to them when things have been bad and asked them to take less wages. And I've been to their things were good and gave them more, gave bonuses. Think of that partnership. Think of those people devoting 20, 25 years to my leadership or the leadership of our company, the culture of our company, which it is now. It's way beyond me. These are things that are very important. Hey, there's a lot there. It's been more than 70 years. Sometimes when you go to County Out, do you ever stop and think, hey, I remember when I first got here. Did you ever think 70 years later you'd be like, even though you don't live there, you're kind of the most important citizen in Conneaut? I'm there no less than 15 or 20 times a year. I mean, mm-hmm. it's on Route 90. It's about, about 40, 35 minutes from my house. I drive by in there. It's a great community. I'm important to those people. And, you know, they're important to me. Try to run a company if you don't have the people. It, they're taken for granted. I am a pro-manufacturing job person. That's why I've been probably successful in buying the companies that have made mistakes. The hourly employees don't make the mistakes. They're there to work. It's the people in the office who make mistakes. Get to, they shouldn't be playing golf. They should be working. I work seven days a week. One thing in, in representing people, which I do, you got to play every single day. Bad things happen on Saturdays and Sundays. Yeah, there's no time off. There's no time off. I'm fortunate enough through my heroes, I've learned to compete against myself. I don't need anyone else to compete about it. I used to compete against them playing basketball and football and all the sports, but I compete against myself now. I want to see how far I go. That's why I'm on this phone here with you this morning, okay? You know, it's really simple. How far have I come? It looks like a very long distance from Grandview Avenue to an ambassador and being living in Ireland and then coming back here and joining the companies here. Next thing, you know, I'm involved in a new project with a, a great university that I call the People's University. I'm involved, as I should be, in uh, trying to help create some energy there. But it's about people. And the hey. answer, as long as, I, as long as I can play, I'm going to play against myself. And when I can't make the three-point shot, I'll start rebounding. Right. Pass it off. Yeah. You mentioned the People's University. That's intriguing. You want to talk a little bit more about that now? There's a big, uh, this is big breaking news. Around here, and uh, we're talking about all of Northeastern Ohio. We're talking about all of Ohio. We're talking about the country. This is breaking news. You want to tell us what's going on? Been looking for an opportunity to uh, invest, fell upon a local university in Cleveland, not right in downtown Cleveland, called Kent University. They had a business school, but in the Kent business. Kent State, world famous right. university. Yeah, and particularly, I think the second biggest master's degrees they have there is in fashion. It's amazing. It's a, you know, it's a really a very unique nursing school, eight campuses. So I call it the People's University, People's College, because it's kind of in the middle you know, where my family came from. I was able to step in. Uh, I've already had a passion for lecturing on entrepreneurship. I, I think this is a gift I've been given as a successful entrepreneur. And I know entrepreneurs when I know and I understand and identify them, but more important, how to caution them on their ability to handle rejection. That's a subject in itself because rejection is the really the enemy of entrepreneurship. Rejection is a recurring theme throughout the Aspire series. Ambassador Crawford returns to the subject again and again, explaining how rejection can either be the worst enemy or the best friend of a would-be entrepreneur. Sometimes both. Learn more in Chapter 2, Coming to America. I'm Josh Booth. Thanks for listening.